Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. I sort of mentioned earlier, we are, are reading through the Gospel of John together uh, in this uh, season of preparation for Easter. Um, we started on uh, Wednesday. Um, if you wanted to participate in that and have not yet joined in, it is, is not too late, in part because every Sunday is a catch-up day, so they build it in for people to be forgetful, which is lovely. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll read straight through uh, landing with the story of Jesus' resurrection, his death and resurrection, leading up to that weekend of Easter. So I uh, would love to have you join in on that. You can do that uh, by going through the YouVersion app. You can find the link to join us uh, as we're reading through this, uh, this um, reading plan. Same picture as the picture behind me on the screen. Uh, you can join us by going to our website, signing up through the event page, or clicking on this picture. Uh, so you can do it that way. Um, you also, if, if the apps and the tech and all of that seems like too much, uh, there's a little bookmark in the back. You could grab, again, catch up with us on that. And then the sermons each week will be on the things that we read together uh, through the week. So uh, that will be the, the plan. Um, one of the reasons why you might want to join us and not just do the plan on your own if you feel up to doing that is because there is a little place at the end of our reading every day for people to include comments, uh, thoughts, reflections, questions, all of those kinds of things. And this might be slightly blasphemous, but I think that is actually my favorite part um, because people just have the greatest insights and curiosities and questions. And uh, there's a question on yesterday's. I was like, I... I mean, I could take some guesses, I suppose, of the answer, but just what a great question for us to think about and different reflections and thoughts. Uh, so I'm actually going to talk today um, about the story we read yesterday, and uh, I hope this is beneficial to people, the time that we're going to spend in this story together this morning. Um, but if you just want to take a nap and go back and read the things that people said about it yesterday, you might be better off. So just... Uh, just really awesome stuff in there. So we hope that you'll be reading together um, or, or take the opportunity to join in on that if that sounds interesting to you. Uh, as we go through this reading, as we go through the Gospel of John, we are asking this question that's on the screen. What, what if it's true? And we're asking for a couple of reasons. One, many of us just assume it's true. We believe the story of Jesus. We have bought into who Jesus is. We go, yep, this is true. I actually think it's helpful to every once in a while, go, okay, but what if it's really true? Like, what if, what if Jesus actually accomplished the things that Scripture tells us he accomplished? What if the things that John says happen in his biography of Jesus actually did happen? What if Jesus really is who he says he is? What if, what if it's true? What difference does that make in my life? And maybe you're asking this question uh, or in some inverse way of, I... Like, what if it's not true? Maybe you were raised in church, you're like, oh, but what if, it's, what if it's not? Or what, what if it is? Um, how does that change your life? So I'd love to have you read through and, and ask that question. What if, it's, what if it's true? What would that mean? How would that change? Oh, everything. Uh, one of the things that 
seems to be fairly universally true of most of us, particularly when we are children, seems to be true of most children, uh, that they are to some level or another afraid of the dark. Uh, A number of us have a number of fears that we have outgrown. Maybe dark is one of them. However, uh, statistics studies show that the fear of the dark lasts into adulthood for 11% of people. 11% is the number. That means one out of uh, every nine-ish adults. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and you're afraid of the dark. And what, No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, um, so uh, I don't, I, I was thinking about this this week. Like, I don't know if I would fit in that 11%. I'm not afraid of the dark itself, per se. Like, if you put me alone in a room in the dark, I'm okay with that. If you put me alone in a room in the dark and I hear somebody else breathing, I'm no longer okay. (laughs) I don't know if that's afraid of the dark, what that's called. Uh, If I am in a dark space with or without other people and I hear a a bump or a tink or a something from someplace where somebody is not supposed to be, I am now afraid of the dark, I suppose, or afraid of whatever is about to happen in the dark. Uh, I, I don't really know. The, the, the dark uh, robs us of one of our senses, right? We can't see. It sort of puts the other senses on high alert and overdrive. It definitely allows our imagination to fill in what our eyes do not see. Uh, so it has all of those things working against us, I suppose. Uh, the dark does have its advantages, I suppose, if um, we should give it its credit. Um, if... Uh, you are somebody who likes to give other people nightmares by sneaking up on them, uh, surprising them. The dark can be very advantageous to you. Uh, if you are a uh, youth pastor who likes to um, put kids in very well-supervised, very well-supervised situations where they are playing running around games in the dark and screaming so loudly that even though those teenagers are now 10 years older and have their own kids and whatever, you're pretty sure their screams are still echoing through the hallways. Also, dark has its advantages for that, I suppose. Uh, Now, if you're in the dark and you hear that bump... Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, these two. Anyway, uh, if, you're, if you're in the dark and you hear that bump or you hear the breathing that shouldn't be there or whatever, what's the first thing I'm going to want to do? Turn on the light, right? Flashlight, match, candle, kerosene lamp, light switch if it's handy, something to turn on the light because my brain tells me that if I can actually see what's happening, then what I'm seeing in my imagination can be disregarded. But I actually want to turn on the light. I think if we went around the room, we could all come up with something that even if we're not afraid of the dark, what would scare us in the dark? Right, something, we go, well, if this happened, if I'm walking down the streets of Portland at two in the morning and I hear a bump down a dark alley, I'm walking past, I mean, whatever. We could come up with scenarios that would scare us in the dark. I actually want to uh, flip the question uh, a little bit and ask this one. What would make you afraid of the light? When we're afraid of the dark, the first thing we want to do is turn on light. What? would make you afraid of the light. 
in our reading this week, a man named Nicodemus comes to talk to Jesus under the cover of darkness and night. And he could be coming at night for any number of reasons. It is possible that either Nicodemus or Jesus or both were just really busy during the day. And this is like their first opportunity to get to talk to each other. I mean, Jesus is trying to uh, start, sort of kick off a whole movement. Um, There's some miraculous things happening. He's gathering some people. He's starting to teach them some different things. Uh, And and so there's a whole movement starting. And that, that fills up your calendar, I would imagine, having not done it myself, fairly quickly. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, which means that he is a highly respected teacher and authority in the Jewish culture. Uh, For those of us who grew up in church, Pharisee sort of has a negative connotation to it. But in their society, these really were the people that they looked up to, that they looked to for answers, that they trusted for wisdom. Nicodemus, you have studied all of these texts of God. You know the laws, you know the rules, you know what we are supposed to do. What am I supposed to do? Hey, Nicodemus, I have this problem. What do I do now? Hey, Nicodemus, would you come over here and settle this dispute? Hey, Nicodemus, would you come and give your blessing to this situation? Would you help us solve this thing? Would you make your presence known? Would you teach this group of people? Nicodemus is somebody that other people look to, and it is very likely, I suppose, that his schedule will be very full of all of these appointments being an important and highly respected person. It is also possible that Nicodemus comes under the cover of darkness because he has questions that he does not want other people to hear him asking, and he waited for the crowds to go away. After all, he's supposed to be the one with the answers. So if he's now coming to this upstart rabbi from some hick town to ask him the questions, what does that say about Nicodemus and his knowledge and his authority? Perhaps he just doesn't want to be seen talking to Jesus. The rumors that are going on about Jesus and who he is and what he's done may not sit well with polite society or those in power whom Nicodemus would call his co-workers and friends. The story is in John chapter 3, and we are going to start right at the very first verse. And as we read this, these first 10 verses, I want us to notice together a couple of things. I want us to notice how Nicodemus addresses Jesus, what he sees Jesus' role as for the people. I want us to notice how Jesus seems to immediately change the subject, although he doesn't actually. And I want us to hold on to our question. What would make you afraid of the light? John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, which means teacher, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain 
how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? Nicodemus refers to Jesus as a great teacher. Says the miracles that they're hearing about, Jesus turning water into wine and other such things, are evidence that God is somehow with or on the side of those teachings and this teacher. And Jesus seems to just completely change the subject with this out of nowhere statement about being born again. You must be born again. Nicodemus is, I think, rightly confused. What are you talking about? Uh, If you have been around Christian culture uh, much over the last, I don't know, anytime the last 40 years, you probably have heard this phrase, born again. By my understanding, it was popularized in the late 70s and early 80s because it was the title of a really popular uh, book at the time. This idea that we are born again Christians is relatively new phrasing. And it falls under the category of what I like to call Christianese, which is this language that you understand Christians either know or feel like they're supposed to know. Like, okay, born again, I know what that means, either because I actually do or because I feel like I'm supposed to tell you I know what it means. But people outside of Christian circles have no idea what in the world we're talking about. That's such a weird phrase, to be born again. Uh, Again, Nicodemus is also confused. I mean, he comes to Jesus with pleasantries. Like, he's trying to do a little, hey, we respect each other introduction here, right? Like, Jesus, you are a great teacher, and it seems like God is with you. And Jesus is probably supposed to reply something about, and you are a great teacher, and it seems like God is with you in all of your wisdom. And instead, Nicodemus says pleasantries, and Jesus offers an out-of-nowhere riddle. Like, you should be born again. What does that even mean, Jesus? Like, uh, oh, oh, it's like a joke. Oh, you got jokes. Oh, okay, we're we're being funny. Great, I I can be funny. Uh, How is somebody supposed to climb back up in their mother? Like, that's Nicodemus' response, because what else is he supposed to? Like, that is such a weird phrase. Some of you are totally grossed out right now, and I apologize for that. And, but that's what he says. He's like, what, this doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about? And then Jesus continues with, like, you have to be born of the Spirit, and humans have human births, and the Spirit, and the wind, and, and Nicodemus is going, how is any of this even possible? Jesus not only doesn't respond immediately with pleasantries, but he doesn't even really address Nicodemus and his title and his role and his status in society or any of these things all the way until verse 10. And even then, when he, when he says respected teacher, he's sort of throwing it back in his face. Like, oh, you're the wise respected teacher and you don't even get... This, like somehow this riddle is supposed to be really basic. This stuff about born again and wind. And, and it, so I'm, I'm mind reading Nicodemus a little bit, which is always dangerous. And so if you don't like where this goes, feel free to just disregard it. It seems to me that there is something really important to Nicodemus about this idea of teaching and being a teacher. 
Like it's the highest compliment that he can think to give Jesus in the moment, or at least that he's willing to give Jesus in the moment. So it's at least, he sees it as a significant compliment. But we also know from plenty of other stories in the uh, other gospels, the other biographies of Jesus in the New Testament, that Jesus has this ability to understand what is going on in people's hearts and minds, their motivations and their thoughts. And he seems to pick out this one and go, wise and respected teacher, huh? Huh, okay. Like somehow he knew this was going to hit Nicodemus a little harder than other things he could bring up. That, that there's something about Nicodemus's identity as a teacher, his role as a teacher, that is more significant to him uh, than other things are. And we could chide him for that a little bit and say, oh, come, come on, Nicodemus, you're a man of God. You have to know that we don't find our identity in the things that we do. You need to find your identity in God and who he has called you to be and, that, uh, and, and all of those things that we like to talk about around identity. But the truth is, the truth is that all of us have values and roles that mean more to us than they do to other people and that are just more significant to us because how we're wired in our own experiences. And I really do think I can say all of us fairly safely. A couple of examples from my own life because I know that story better than yours. So, uh, there are a lot of things involved with being a pastor. It's just a bunch of different roles, right? Like sometimes I'm up here and I'm talking to you guys. Sometimes I'm uh, counseling people or couples. Sometimes I'm leading meetings, visiting people, uh, whatever it may be. A bunch of different stuff. If somebody came up to me and said, hey, Josh, you really did a terrible job of leading that meeting. Uh, that would sting, and it would sting for me uh, in part because uh, I'm one of the weird people who kind of actually likes meetings, or at least what we can accomplish in a meeting. Like, I, I love the feeling of we sat down with a question or a problem, and as we talked about it and sorted it and brainstormed for an hour or whatever, um, we moved the ball down the field and we're closer to solving that problem. I love that feeling. So I kind of like meetings, and it would sting to hear somebody say, wow, you did a lousy job. Uh, leading, leading that, that meeting. That was, uh, that was pretty terrible. Um, part of pastoring is, is shepherding and caring for people in, in a bunch of different ways. If, if somebody came up to me and said, hey, Josh, I'm really frustrated because you failed to keep the people in this church safe, that would be crushing because, and for some of you, you're like, that wouldn't bother me in the slightest. And that's actually exactly my point. That because of my own experiences and how I'm wired, that idea of keeping other people safe is a really significant value to me. And so when somebody picks at that value, that hurts a lot more. If somebody were to come up to me and say, hey, Josh, um, you just don't do a very good job of caring for the people in the church. Ooh, I mean, that would, that would sting, sure. Um, I, I want to do a good job. I want to care well for people, uh, all those, those things. If somebody walked up to me and said, hey, Josh, you do a horrific job of caring for your kids. 
that would crush me because of all the things that I want to be, somewhere very near the top of the list is a good parent. And not just look like a good parent, but actually be a good parent. Now, a couple of caveats here. One, I don't say these things so that people will come up and give me compliments later. That is not the goal here. The other thing is that if I am terrible at any of those things, please tell me. I really need to know. Like We do need to tell each other the truth about things that we see that are a problem. So please do. I'm just saying that there are things that, whereas um, somebody telling you you did a horrible job being a leader might be absolutely crushing to you, there are other things that would be crushing to me. We all have these values, these roles. Maybe for you, you really want people to see you as honest, or you really want people to see you as dependable. And so if somebody, like the worst thing somebody could say to you is, hey, I feel like you lied to me or you misled me, or hey, you really let me down on this thing. Or maybe there's a particular role that you really want to be seen or activity that you really want to be seen as good at. Um, maybe you really want people to think that you are an exceptional pickleball player. And so you will put in the work to be a better pickleball player. Excellent. But then also you'll find ways to like work it into conversation so people know how much better you're getting at it. Right? Like, hey, how was your Saturday? Oh, yeah, I mowed the lawn. No, that's not, yeah, cool, good for you. What, oh, me? Oh, well, I played pickleball. I did win all six times. I just, I know, I know, it was kind of crazy uh, how that worked out. Right? Like, we have roles and values that just matter more to each of us. For Nicodemus, it seems like it is possible that teaching is one of those things for him. And so he comes to talk to Jesus about teaching. Jesus does not want to swap teaching techniques with Nicodemus. Like if Nicodemus is coming to say, hey, you're a good teacher, I'm a good teacher, like let's swap notes and be better teachers. Jesus is not interested. There are thousands of people who would agree, or sorry, thousands of people, there are millions of people, millions of people who today would agree with Nicodemus that Jesus is a really good, was a really good teacher. That he taught really wise and important and valuable things that would be good for us as a society to follow and know. Including many, many people who don't follow Jesus at all. Some who say they do and some who don't. Because those are different things. Millions of people say, yes, good teacher. But Jesus' primary objective was not to be a good teacher. And so Nicodemus comes with, hey, good teacher. And Jesus says, hey, let's talk about life. Let's talk about new life. Jesus came to offer people a brand new life. And sometimes that meant teaching a new way of living. And so he taught wise things about how we get along with each other, how we create society, all those kind of things. Because a new way of living. But, but what Jesus is really offering people is a whole new, now and forever, from here through eternity, life. And Nicodemus is completely confused. He might be hung up on how, like how does that happen? What do you mean born again in the spirit? Um, maybe it's just so different from what he came to the conversation with. It's also possible that he's just quite happy with the status and the wealth that he has in his life. 
And the idea of getting a new life just doesn't particularly appeal to him. Jesus later would teach that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to get into heaven. And I, I think it's significant and interesting and indicative of what Jesus was teaching that his movement was predominantly filled up with people who are outcasts and on the edges of society. There were many people who were in the, the center of society and of wealth who were following him as well. But, but when Jesus is offering you a whole new life and you really like the life you have, it's a little harder to go, sure, I'll just exchange all the things that I feel like I've worked for, the things that make me comfortable, the things that I've come to depend on, I will just give those up for whatever new life you're offering me. Whereas if you don't have any of that stuff or don't feel that way about anything, it is easier to just exchange for a new life from Jesus. Perhaps Nicodemus really likes his status, he likes his position, he knows all the right answers, He's studied, he's learned, he's memorized at least the first five books of the Bible, if not the whole Old Testament. He, he gets the rules and people look to him for authority and answers and maybe he just likes that a lot. I think Jesus is saying, look, Nicodemus, you can understand the rules and you can teach the people, but you have got to know where the laws and the stories are going. You have to know where this is headed. He's about to say that, that he, Jesus, and all the prophets of old have been trying to tell the people what God is up to. Essentially saying, Nicodemus, you have the right answers. You have the right answers, Nicodemus. What you need is a new life. What you need really is not right answers. It's a new life. Are the right answers going to be part of that? Sure. But aiming to have right answers for the sake of having the right answers and being able to impress other people with your answers is a dead kind of life. Jesus wants to offer him a whole new life. So he continues in verse 11, John 3. I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. So this is Jesus referring to himself, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Okay, flip back with me to this story of Moses that Jesus just referenced. This is in Numbers 21. So we're now in the fourth book of the Bible. Again, Jesus and Nicodemus would have both known this story really well. They would have uh, memorized it. We're going to dive in, in in Numbers 21 verse 4, and I'm going to warn you before we do that this is a bizarre story. What God does is weird. What the people do is weird. What the solution is is weird. It's all, it's all weird. It's, just, it's a strange story. So with that caveat, here we go. Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. 
But the people grew impatient with the long journey and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complained. There is nothing to eat here and nothing to drink and we hate this horrible manna. Okay, brief refresh. So we're all on the same page about where we are here. The people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt for centuries. God freed them from slavery through a number of miraculous and awe-inspiring and honestly heartbreaking things. And they are sent out of Egypt into the desert. They think they are headed to a promised land and it turns out they're gonna have to spend a significant amount of time wandering around in the desert. And part of the problem with that is that desert life is now a whole new way of life for them. They were used to the slavery life. Doesn't mean they liked it quite hated it, it seems, but they were at least used to it. And the problem with something new and unfamiliar is even if it's better than what was, it's so uncomfortable, we often want to go back. And so they immediately start with a little revisionist history thing about how, oh man, wasn't slavery awesome where we got to just eat and sleep and sit around all day? It was fabulous. And it took them like a week to forget what 400 years of slavery looked like. And And they start complaining about it, and they're hungry, and they don't know how to find food, because at least when they were slaves, they knew how to get food, and they knew where they were going to sleep, and they they just, there was a world and a structure that they understood. And so they're going, we're all going to die. We don't know how to do this new life. And God says, look, I I got you. I'll provide food for you. And that's this manna stuff they're talking about, that it just shows up like dew in the morning, on the ground, and all they have to do is go out and collect it and bring it, and they make it, and it's food. And the next day, there's more, and it just keeps showing up, God providing day after day after day. Now, in fairness to them, my wife will be the first one to tell you that if we have the same food like twice in a two-week period, I'm like, oh, this thing again? Uh, And so the same thing every day, I kind of get that part. I'm like, okay, look, I would not enjoy the manna everyday thing Either imagine there's some different things. You can make some donuts with it one day or some bread. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there's some ways to mix it up, but I get it. The statement, there is nothing to eat here other than this food that we're holding in our hands is a weird statement, but that's where they're at. They're like, oh, this is awful. Um, God keeps providing for us day after day after day. Isn't this just terrible? Okay. Verse six. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people. I told you it was weird. And many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told him, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. Okay, let's go back to the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. Again, they both know this story really well. Jesus just references it. And what he is saying in this reference is Nicodemus, the people are poisoned. And not just the people of our day and age, but the the people of all time. See, this is the overarching story of scripture that God made the world and people in it good and perfect. And then this poison called sin came along. And it ruined everything. It infected everything. God had made a good and perfect world to live and last forever. It was supposed to be eternal because life is that good. And now the poison is in it. 
and it opens the doors to death because God says, look, the life can last forever, but the poison cannot. And so there's going to have to be a death. And that at some point, I will make it all right and good again. But death has to come so the poison can be eliminated. And God separated himself from the people because he couldn't be a part of the poison sharing. And now this poison is in us and in all of creation. And Jesus is using this niche story in Numbers to show Nicodemus what he is actually here to offer. That just as Moses lifted up a bronze snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, so himself, Son of Man being a loaded term that means essentially Savior of the people, that Nicodemus would have either been really offended by Jesus using or really excited about, and there wasn't a lot of in-between, the Son of Man will also be lifted up on a pole. That Jesus is going to be lifted up on a cross in a public place for all those people to see, but really for people through all time to be able to look at and find life, to find healing from the poison. That Jesus' death will undo the everlasting consequences of sin, will undo our separation from God and make a way for new life again. This is where the story is headed, and John includes it in his gospel here so we can know where we're going, that this whole story points us toward the Son of Man being lifted up on a cross so that there can be healing from the poison and new life, not just now, but now and forever kind of life. And so Jesus continues with, what is perhaps the most famous Bible verse in our day and time, John 3.16. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. Jesus will be lifted not for our judgment, but for our salvation. Not for our condemnation, but for our life. Like the snake on the pole, saving life from poison and death. That when Jesus is lifted up, anyone who carries the poison, which is all of us, can look to him and find not only forgiveness for the ways that we have contributed pain to others, because that's what the poison did, is it introduced not only death, but it introduced pain and broken relationships and all those things that we hate about the world. And if that's my car, I really apologize. Uh, Jesus is, is the one that people can look to to find rescue from the poison to find that we will be forgiven for all of the ways that we have contributed to pain and in doing so spread the poison. That we can find new life again. For those listening on the podcast, I'm just going to pause because I don't know. My, like my, my ADD just went, wee! There I go. All right. One of the ways sin is talked about in scripture is as a shadow or as darkness. That what God made to be light 
the poison has turned into darkness and shadow. And Jesus is offering that he will offer himself as the light of the world, as uh, John wrote in the first chapter of his gospel. John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. This is the story of Jesus. So while we won't have to perish, the darkness will. So while we won't be judged and condemned, the darkness will be, but that includes the darkness in us. And so it begins to feel like we are getting judged or condemned or shamed because the darkness is part of who we are. But Jesus is offering to undo the poison, outshine the darkness. He continues in John 3, verse 18. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. And in um, my New Living Translation, I have a little footnote, uh, other possible translation for verse 21 would read this way. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see God at work in what he is doing. Jesus starts talking about light and dark. Like, hey, Nicodemus, why'd you show up in the dark? What were you afraid of people hearing? What were you afraid of people seeing? Why were you afraid of the light? For you, for me, that's... That's our question. Why, why are you, what would make you afraid of the light? Um, maybe, maybe it's that you really want people to see you as competent and accomplished. And so it's just easier to hide your questions and your curiosities and your self-doubts in the dark and not really bring them up to anybody because then you can just pretend that you've got it all together. Maybe you want people to see you as a really good parent and so you make sure you post the pictures, things going well. And look, most of the time you're a really good parent. So it's, it's fine. We just hide the stuff that's the not good. And you just won't tell anybody how rough it was trying to get here this morning. It's true most of the time, isn't it? Maybe you want to be seen as a really good husband. Again, you are, most of the time. So we just won't talk about those websites. 
or that woman on the business trip 10 years ago. Maybe you want to be seen as a really good wife. And so you tell everybody how awesome your husband is and you just don't tell anybody about the bitterness or the websites that you go to or that guy at work or how you wish it could just be you and the kids and the husband would go away. Maybe you really want people to see you as trustworthy and dependent and so the very or dependable. So the very fact that you know you're hiding stuff from people, well, you can't tell anybody now. What would they think? Maybe you just really want to be loved. You just want to be seen as lovable and be loved, and you're just sure. And, and the darkness is happy to remind you that if you pulled the stuff out of the darkness and you put it in the light, well, surely nobody would love you then. What are you afraid of seeing in the light? What are you hoping you can just hide in the shadows from Jesus and from other people? For those of us who really fully intend to follow Jesus with our lives, we want to step into, many of us, we want to step into the light of Christ and we want to let that light cast a little shadow behind us that we can just hold a couple of things and just need to talk to Jesus about it. They don't have to be big things. Maybe they're huge. Maybe they're little. We just want them to fit nicely in the shadow that Jesus casts behind us. What would make you afraid of the light shining on your life? Here's a better and certainly more important question. What if the light is as good as Jesus says it is? What if the light really is as good as Jesus says it is? The darkness whispers that you're just going to have to show your shame to everybody, that you won't be lovable anymore, that people are going to find out they can't trust you, that all it's going to lead to is more brokenness. What if the light is really as good as Jesus says it is? What if in the light what you really find is grace? What if in the light you actually find freedom from the shame you've been carrying around because you just haven't wanted to let people know? What if in the light you find just how lovable you are and how lovable you can be, how loved you are, because you're actually able to feel it because you're not turning your back to it to try to protect yourself? What if you actually were able to show up authentically in the light, in the presence of Jesus and say, this is all I've got and all I am. And you find out that Jesus's reaction is joy and love and grace. And that he hates the stuff that hides in the darkness and tethers you to it and tries to, tries to draw you back in it. He hates that stuff even more than you do. Sometimes we try to show up in the light and figure, well, I can, I can just stay tethered to the darkness a little bit. I'll just hold on to this string so I can get back to where I came from just in case this light is too bright or too harsh or I don't like it anymore. It comes from a belief that the light is not as good as Jesus says it is. That somehow it's going to burn and be harsh 
that somehow it's going to make things worse. Now, I'm not saying throwing everything out in the light is easy or that it makes things easy. Definitely not going to say that it feels good. But what if the light really is as good as Jesus says it is? What if Jesus's offer is as true and as good and as life-giving as Jesus says it is? I want to invite the worship team up. I'm going to pray for us in just a second. And as they're getting settled, and as I pray for us, I want to invite you to pray along with me. To have your own conversation with God, your own conversation with Jesus about stepping into the light. I want to pray it over all of us. But I want each of us to have this opportunity to have that conversation with Jesus. And maybe for you, this will be the first time that you have ever really said, Jesus, here is all of me and you can have all of it. Maybe for you, it's the 50th or the 500th time. Jesus's grace does not diminish over time. We can still step into the light. So I want to pray over us. I want to invite you to have this conversation with Jesus yourself. Like, ignore what I'm going to say if you want to. Talk out loud yourself if you want to. But let's step into the light of Christ together. You pray with me. Father God, you know, maybe better than we do, the things that tether us to the darkness. The things that we uh, try to hold on to the things that um, we've depended on to numb out or feel better temporarily. God, you know all the things that we've tried to make solutions in our life that just don't work. You know how much some of us struggle to trust you that the light is as good as you say it is. Would you give us the courage to step into the light? Would you give us the support of each other to step into the light? God, I really don't believe that you call us to live a life where, um, where we have to tell everybody everything. I, I don't think you made us for that, but God, would you make clear to us a couple of people that we could come into the light with, who would help us have the courage, who we would be able to share our stuff with, especially those closest to us, and find um, that there's grace and there's smiles and there's love and there's thank you for sharing that with me and that what we find in you, we can find to some degree in each other. Father, would you make us a people so full of your grace and your light that we know we can trust to step into that light together. Would you fill our hearts and our minds with joy from finding that the light really is as good as you say it is? That we could carry that light, share it with the people around us.
find and share and rejoice that there really is new life now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. for last song. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.